0: Hi, this is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm the editor of the journal Radiology. This is part one of our November 2019 podcast. The goal of these podcasts is to present a brief summary of key research in our field to keep you up to date. Today, four articles to review, high performance, low field MRI, statin use in arthritis, CT for resection of pancreatic cancer, and evaluation of brain volume in multiple sclerosis. Before we get to those topics, a brief introduction. This journal sees about 3,000 submissions per year. In round numbers, about 10% get published, about 300 articles. Why are there so many submissions to radiology? For my entire career, radiology was the place to publish. Why? Radiology is our version of JAMA, our New England journal. Radiology covers all the topics, gets the best submissions from authors in our field. For an author, publishing in radiology means you are in the mainstream, that your results are of interest to other radiologists. The biggest change in the last 10 years, the makeup of authors submitting to our journal. Much less from the United States and Europe than in the past, more from China. Nearly one-third of submitted research in our field now from China, much of it cutting edge. You remember when the quality of manufactured products from China was terrible, but now the highest quality cell phones in the world are assembled there, including iPhones, some of the most cutting-edge artificial intelligence work now done in China. A recent Nobel Prize for new drugs to treat malaria also rising in China. Not surprising, outstanding radiology research as well. We have about 1,000 experts who perform peer review for our journal. These experts have little spare time but still volunteer their expertise. It's not easy. Complex research articles, a lot of statistics. But who are the radiology reviewers? Our reviewers are the top experts throughout the world. The reviews are blinded. The names of the reviewers are not revealed to the authors. There are two reasons for this. Number one, well, we've always done it that way. Not a great reason, but that's probably the main issue. The reviewers and the authors in our field are very comfortable with that approach. Reason two, there's a strong belief that reviewers will be more critical if anonymous. Is that the best approach? Anonymous reviews seem completely opposite to everything else we demand now. We now live in a world of transparency, but we hide reviewers' names. I don't know if that's the best or not, but it seems to work reasonably well. But why do peer review at all? Peer-reviewed publications remain the mainstay of medical and most scientific disciplines. Unfortunately, getting all of these experts to review articles is pretty slow. The research itself takes one to two years to complete, maybe longer. The review process may take another year. In the age of instant text messages, blogs, and tweets, why do we continue to bother with this old-fashioned peer-review process? One reason to why bother with peer review reminds me of the description of democracy by Winston Churchill. He said, no one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. By analogy, the peer review process is not perfect. Reviewers make mistakes. They're busy. It takes a long time. They have bias. They cannot possibly know everything. Envision a new approach to scientific publishing. Skip the peer review step altogether. Every researcher for herself. Put your publication out there on the web for all to see. Everyone who listens to this podcast, let's make a research study and put it on the web. This approach is actually being used a lot in certain fields, physics and computer science, for example. The main website for authors to post their work is called Archive, spelled A-R-X-I-V. But for medicine, we are getting into this publish-yourself approach as well. The website for medicine is called BioArchive, In my mind, the medical self-published websites change things completely. That new way to detect breast cancer, use thermal imaging, just my opinion versus yours. Does that make sense? Can we accept non-peer-reviewed results in medicine? No checks and balances? I don't think so. Two reasons, however, to self-publish. One, peer review is slow. Second, the high cost to publish, between $3,000 to $5,000 per article. Isn't everything on the web free? free maps, free Google search, free Facebook friends, and free publishing. Let's look at free publishing on Archive.org. Archive posts 12,000 research articles each month and growing. This journal, only 24 research articles per month. The concept on free websites, publish everything, use a search engine, the best new research will be discovered somehow, very democratic. Unfortunately, the explosion of medical and scientific publishing does not also mean that the knowledge is actually available. It is almost the opposite. Finding a new article seems more up to Google than up to me. The top Google search result is clicked on one-third of the time. Only 6% of the time do we bother to go to the second page of a search result. Today's overwhelming abundance of medical information means that search becomes useless or extremely time-consuming, non-productive. If you want images showing complications of a renal transplant, might you be better off going directly to radiographics? Do you need to see the new thyroid classification system, how it really works? Check out Radiology. While we continue to experiment with different publishing methods, peer-reviewed publishing remains a cornerstone of our profession. We need to weed out fake news, bad science, and bad medicine. An extreme example, the negative worldwide impact of inadequate vaccine research and autism. Peer reviewed research is the best option for credibility in radiology and for the care of our patients. Our first topic is a concept paper, a technical development. The title is Opportunities in Interventional and Diagnostic Imaging by Using High Performance, Low Field Strength MRI. The first author, Dr. Adrian Campbell Washburn. The senior author, Dr. Robert Balaban. The study is from the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland background. This is an unusual paper. The concept is simple. Buy the most expensive 1.5T MRI scanner in the world, then reduce the magnetic field strength to 0.5T and see what happens. That's it. A little background first. When you buy a 1.5T or 3T MRI scanner, when it arrives at your site, the field strength is zero. It first gets positioned in place and then supercooled with liquid helium. Then the magnet undergoes a one to two day process to ramp up the magnet strength to full power. The installation engineer supplies electric current to the loops of wire to create the magnetic field. The engineer attaches a power supply to the electric terminals of the magnet, gradually increasing the current. In your house, you usually have 100 to 200 amps of electric current. The MRI requires about 500 to 1,000 amps. Higher amperage is associated with higher field strength the interesting point for supercooled MRI scanners. When the target magnetic field strength is reached, the engineer can turn off the external power supply. At that point, the current flows all by itself in a loop around the wires in the magnet. At a temperature of near absolute zero, there is no resistance to the flow of current. The MRI field strength stays where you set it, as long as the cryogens are added to keep it cold. Well, it sort of stays there. In reality, there are little imperfections in the magnet, a tiny amount of magnetism of the MRI scanner is lost per year. You never really notice this. For practical purposes, you set it and forget it. Of course, the magnet does not have to be ramped up to exactly 1.5 or 3 tesla. If you have some other nearby scanners, one might be at 1.49 tesla, another at 1.51 tesla. Why these little differences? Remember, the resonance frequency of protons is precisely related to the magnetic field strength. We have to send in a radio frequency pulse at an exact frequency. If the two adjacent MRI scanners have ever so slightly different magnet strengths, each responds to a different frequency. That's a good thing. The scanners otherwise might interfere with each other. The authors took this ability to change the magnet strength to an extreme. They downgraded their 1.5T magnet to about 0.5T, but they still had the advanced 128-channel multi-coil technology of their state-of-the-art device. A major part of the cost of a scanner is the gradient magnetic fields. If you pay more money, you get better gradient coils. The gradient coils are the ones that are actively working. They change the magnetic field from head to toe, from right to left across the body. More money means gradient coils that can change much more rapidly, and echo can be formed more quickly. The horsepower of the MRI is the gradient coil. As a radiologist, you see the shorter TRs and TEs that are possible. Essentially, the authors have an engine of a Porsche placed in a Honda Civic. Why bother? Why not keep the Porsche? One main reason, the NIH team has been largely responsible for the development of real-time interventional MRI. Their team, led by Dr. Robert Letterman, has been putting catheters in the arteries and veins with MRI guidance for 5 to 10 years now. They aim to do ablations of the atria and put stents in the heart all under MRI guidance. The advantages full 3d mri and no radiation normally in the cath lab cardiologists only see the tip of their catheter in relationship to the overlying bone they operate by feel by touch combining their knowledge of the heart to find small structures like the foramen ovale or the coronary sinus it's quite remarkable it ever works and these procedures can last five to ten hours tremendous radiation to the patient to the cardiologist to the radiologist these interventionalists have long aimed to have full 3d imaging capability Visualize exactly where the catheter is in the body. There are many problems, of course. One big issue is that the wires and devices heat during the MRI. Device heating tends to be greater at high field strength. Another problem, these interventional devices cause large artifacts, artifacts that are larger again at higher field strength. The reason for artifacts for devices, this is due to the issue of magnetic susceptibility. What is that? Magnetic susceptibility is just what the term states the ability to magnetize tissue or other materials. For example, air is hard to magnetize, few protons. Bone, also hard to magnetize that. The ability to magnetize bone and air in the lung is very different than our ability to magnetize the spleen or liver. On our images, differences in the ability to magnetize lung versus the liver results in artifacts. These artifacts are worse where air is adjacent to soft tissue. Some of the worst problems... Paranasal sinuses, the lungs, bowel, in the abdomen, even around the shoulder. Purpose Evaluate low field but high performance MRI in various areas of the body. Results The authors evaluated 88 patients with their new device. Here are the main results. Number one Much better for devices. Fewer artifacts at low field, less heating. Less than one degree of heating at 0.5 T, almost 10 degrees at 1.5 T. The authors think low field MRI would be safer for interventional procedures. Number two, the lungs, sinuses, airways, huge improvement. The lungs are the best example. At low field, the magnetic field was much more uniform. Why? The lungs are heterogeneous, little regions of air, alveoli, more air, pleura. These changes in structure result in little changes in the local magnetic fields. At 1.5 t, Normal MRI pulse sequences do not see anything, despite the huge amount of lung structure that we see on CT. But at low field with modern pulse sequences, suddenly lung structure is revealed. The authors provide remarkable images of emphysema and COPD with their new MRI. Number three, advanced neuro and cardiac imaging. These can be high-tech areas using advanced pulse sequences that are not normally found at low field. Using powerful gradients and spiral imaging, there were fewer artifacts than at 1.5 T. Conclusion To date, low field MRI mostly means low cost imaging, rather slow, just doing bread and butter cases brain, spine, knee, and shoulder for outpatients. The concepts in this article are intended to make the MRI community curious to see what else is not only possible, but potentially better, faster, or safer at low field. Dr. Tom Grist at the University of Wisconsin Madison has been an innovator in MRI throughout his career. He provides an editorial for this paper from the NIH, describing the effort as back to the future. He notes the NIH group has doubled the efficiency of MRI at low field, optimizing low field to get much more signal and contrast than has previously been achieved. I will conclude that this work was spearheaded mostly by individuals at the neurologic and cardiovascular institutes at the NIH. The abbreviations are NHLBI, the Heart and Lung Blood Institute, and NINDS, the Neurologic Disease Institute. These institutes are largely devoid of radiologists, but they do have huge financial resources. They have invested strongly in MRI technology. The hospital at the NIH in Bethesda is tiny by comparison, usually only about 150 beds are filled. Yet there are more than 20 MRI scanners on the campus with dozens of engineers, physicists, and research fellows working on their next generation MRI technology. It will be interesting to see what radiologists think of this approach, Low-field but high-horsepower MRI. Next, a research paper of relevance to roughly half the adults in the United States who take statins. The title, Statin Use and Knee Osteoarthritis, Outcome Measures According to the Presence of Herbidin Nodes, Results from the Osteoarthritis Initiative. The first author, Dr. Araya Hag Marazam, the senior author, Dr. Shadpur Damari, The lead and senior authors are from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Background, statin therapy is now recommended for about one half of the United States population. It might be healthier to eat better and exercise more, but most people do not do this. Two thirds of the population is overweight, elevated cholesterol is present in one third, diabetes in 15%. Clearly, diet and exercise are simply too difficult. Instead, the federal government will pay to treat us with statins to reduce cholesterol, prevent myocardial infarction. And naturally we become concerned about side effects of all the medications that we take. Number one, musculoskeletal pain from statins. At low dose, no symptoms, but our diets are so poor we need to go to high doses of statins to get our blood lipids under control. As the dose goes up, muscle pain affects more people. Next, we treat older people. They forget where they put their car keys. The cell phone seems always lost. It must be the statins, right? Not just that we're aging. What about statins and memory loss, even dementia? Fake news. A 2013 study by Johns Hopkins looked at 41 different studies. 23,000 men and women followed for about 25 years. No evidence that statins caused memory loss or dementia. In fact, there was evidence of the opposite, some protection against dementia. Then, a 2015 paper in the New England Journal of Medicine about 1 million statin users evaluated by authors at Rutgers and University of Pennsylvania in 2015. This report showed that literally all medications and statins used to treat high blood lipids were associated with acute memory loss in the first 30 days, and all of the medications to the same degree. But wait, does that make sense? At least five different statin medications, five other non-statin drugs that work on the gut, different molecular structures of all of these drugs. Do you want to believe that each and every drug causes memory loss? The authors concluded, bias. Just trying to track memory loss means asking a lot of questions. Did you lose your car keys this week after you started taking a statin? Authors concluded that just asking about memory loss introduced bias, a sort of white coat effect. But the muscle aches and pains from statins are real. This stimulated researchers to look at the relationship of statins to the development of arthritis. So far, conflicting results. But it seems that maybe the exact subtype of osteoarthritis could be complicating research on this topic. Do you recall the term nodal osteoarthritis? I'm sure your MSK colleagues know the term. Most of the rest of us vaguely remember the term Heberden nodes from MSK rotations. Heberden nodes are bony enlargements in the DIP joints, the joints closest to the ends of the fingers and toes. Many older individuals have these swellings. It makes it hard to get a ring on or off their finger. The fingers become crooked, hard to bend. Patients can also have bone deformity at the PIP joints proximally. Those are called Bouchard's nodes. These bony deformities in the fingers and toes may or may not be painful. Quite interesting, Heberden nodes are 10 times more common in women than men. On your radiology board exams, you remembered that the presence of these PIP and DIP nodes point to osteoarthritis rather than to rheumatoid arthritis. A few more details. Osteoarthritis can be inherited genetic. Heberden nodes with osteoarthritis can be inherited The daughter has a 50% chance of Heberden nodes if mother has them. What is unique about nodal arthritis? In these bone deformities, there are elevated markers of inflammation and even lipid dysregulation. That's where we pick up the story of statins and arthritis. Purpose. Determine the relationship of statin use on the progression of osteoarthritis. The authors look separately at patients with Heberden nodal arthritis versus those with arthritis but without nodes. Methods. Your Tax Dollars at Work, a wonderful initiative from the NIH called the OAI, Osteoarthritis Initiative. The OAI study enrolled about 5,000 patients beginning in the year 2004, and they are still being followed. All of the patients had x-rays of their hands and knees. Adults were categorized into two groups, node-positive arthritis or node-negative osteoarthritis based on their hands. Then in each group, about half the subjects took statins, half did not. The main outcome, evaluation of about 6,000 knee x-rays. The x-rays were looked at over several years to see if knee joint narrowing occurred in each group. Results. Number one, in individuals who had Heberden nodes in their hands, nodal osteoarthritis, there was less joint narrowing, less joint pain, less disability in adults who took statins. In adults with osteoarthritis but no nodes, groups with and without statin use showed the same amount of arthritis. Number 2. Over 8 years, statin use was associated with about 50% lower risk of joint space narrowing for individuals with nodal arthritis. But again, no relationship of statins to joint narrowing in the knee if there were no Heberden nodes. Conclusion. It's very likely you have an older relative or friend with these joint deformities, perhaps Heberden nodes, as part of their osteoarthritis. This is very nice data that indicates statin use is associated with less arthritis progression and less pain and disability. Another win for statins. We might otherwise be concerned that the muscle aches and pains of statins might be making arthritis worse, but that was not the case. We would also be wrong to conclude that statins should be considered some sort of treatment for osteoarthritis, but these results are very reassuring for patients who need to take a statin. The mechanism may be reduced inflammation due to statin use and the indications for statins continues to increase. You probably know that high-dose statins are being used after coronary stenting. Why? Reduced inflammation and less reactive tissue around the vascular stent. And last week, more good news for statins. Elderly adults age 75 and older, can't we stop the statin at some point? Last week's New England Journal of Medicine looked at benefit of statins after acute myocardial infarction. In that study, only the adults 75 years and older showed a major benefit of statin use. In summary, the arthritis data is compelling, excellent data from the group at Hopkins on statin effects in relationship to osteoarthritis. Our next topic relates to neoadjuvant therapy and surgery. Not too long ago, radiologists could rely on a set of rules to help us communicate to surgeons, If certain features were present on the CT or MRI, not a surgical candidate. The situation has changed now. Neoadjuvant therapy is here. Use chemo or radiation before surgery, hope to shrink the tumor, then go to surgery. This article talks about pancreatic cancer, an extreme example, and how we as radiologists need improvement in the era of neoadjuvant therapy. The title is Preoperative CT Classification of the Resectability of Pancreatic Cancer, Inter-Observer Agreement. Once again, our article is from Seoul National University Hospital. First author, Dr. Jin Ju, senior author, doctor Hyung Hyun-kyung Yang. Background. Pancreatic cancer, a dismal prognosis. Five-year survival is only 10%. The reason, the pancreas does not have a capsule. There is early invasion of nearby organs and critical arteries and veins. Chemotherapy and radiation helps very little. But if the primary tumor can be removed, the patient does better. We used to have a clear definition of what can be resected by the surgeon and what cannot. For example, if the tumor invaded the superior mesenteric artery, no surgery was possible. The artery cannot be resected. It supplies most of your gut. If the superior mesenteric vein was invaded, that's different. Vein patches could be placed and the tumor removed. Along with those clear definitions, we made up rules on the CT scans. Example. If the tumor encased the artery involving more than 180 degrees of the circumference, we said that artery was invaded. No surgery. Researchers tested the CT rule by comparison to surgical results. The rule worked. Now, a new playbook, a new category for us to learn. It's called borderline resectable. What is that? It sounds more like that older senior surgeon at your hospital scratching his head when looking at the CT. Yes, I'm pretty sure I can get it out. The problem with the category borderline resectable is that our CT standards are not yet established. We can make up rules, but we need research to see, number one, if the CT readers can follow the rules, and number two, if the rule works, does it make sense and correlate with surgery? Purpose. Determine reader agreement for determining pancreatic tumor resection status on preoperative CT scan. Methods. Eight readers were evaluated. Four of them had 6 to 10 years' experience in abdominal imaging. Four were fellows with 1 to 2 years of experience. There were 110 patients who had a pre-op CT scan to see if the readers gave the same resection score. The radiologists categorized tumors as resectable, borderline resectable, or unresectable. Unresectable meant greater than 180 degrees circumferential abutment of the main arteries or a superior mesenteric vein that could not be repaired borderline resectable, artery less than 180 degrees of involvement, and a superior mesenteric vein that could be repaired by the surgeon. Results, I'm always uncomfortable when comparing junior readers to senior readers. About a million studies have already determined that the senior readers are better. If you want to make the point that you're smarter because you're senior, you can always get the junior person who is enthusiastic but does not know the subject as well as you. That's not what we really want to know. In this study, senior radiologists were again better than the junior readers, but not by a lot. Next, ask just the four senior readers if the tumor is resectable, borderline, or unresectable. Answer, the four readers gave the same score only half the time. Next, get rid of the CT scans with poor image quality, thicker slices. We can imagine those low-quality cases could generate more disagreement, but it did not matter. And the category with most disagreement borderline resectable. If the tumor was borderline resectable at surgery, all four readers gave the same score on only one out of four cases. Now, these are really good radiologists. Let's look at them one at a time. As you know, each has their own AUC curve. Each has their own sensitivity and specificity. The AUC curve puts these on the X and Y axes, looks for an overall measure of diagnostic performance. Recall AUC of 1 is perfect, 0.5, toss of a coin. It turns out that the AUC values for all of the senior readers were very high, from 0.93 to 0.98. Conclusion. What's going on? The results again. Four senior readers only agree with each other 50% of the time, but each reader by themselves has a very high AUC diagnostic performance value, from 0.93 to 0.98. On its face, it does not seem to make sense. But here is one way to get these results of lots of reader disagreements, but individually high diagnostic performance. Although the readers had lots of disagreements as a group, they disagreed on different cases. Imagine you are a surgeon. You go to your favorite radiologist. That person seems great. High diagnostic performance. Everyone is happy. But next you become the suspicious surgeon. Instead of having just one favorite radiologist, you ask four radiologists on each case. Now the results seem like a disaster. You might only get two or three of the four radiologists to agree on a particular case. Next CT scan, again, three of four agree, but it's a different set of three radiologists to agree that next time. The reasons for disagreement, these borderline resectable cases in pancreatic cancer are simply difficult. The pancreas tumor shows inflammation. The results indicate that CT criteria are not yet reproducible. More work needs to be done. Let me conclude with a vignette about agreement between different radiologists. We had a clinician who began having an odd behavior. On Monday, she would ask one of the radiologists if cancer was present or not. On Tuesday, she would come down to the department again and ask a different radiologist if cancer was present. Wednesday, repeated, she would ask yet another radiologist. This was odd. Did she forget the answer from the day before, cognitive decline? Was she doing a psychological experiment with our staff? There was enough concern. I went to the chief of the clinical service. My goal, unofficial, very discreet mention to the chief, our goal is to help each other. Maybe just keep an eye on this person. See if they're okay. Any pattern of odd behavior, maybe a stress issue. Not what happened. While I was talking to the chief of service, the chief says, hmm, that's odd. Let's find out. Within two minutes, the physician in question is in the office with me and the chief of service. The chief says, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Blemke says, you are asking three or four radiologists about the same patient, the same case over and over. Is that true? The answer from Dr. So-and-so, well, no, that's not the case. Chief says, thank you and goodbye. And Dr. Blemke, thank you so much for stopping by, but this behavior has never happened. Dr. Smith confirms this. Indeed, we never had that problem again. Our final topic. Atrophied brain T2 lesion volume at MRI is associated with disability progression and conversion to secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. The first author, Antonia Genovese, the senior author, Dr. Robert Zavidinov. The paper is from the University of Buffalo, State University of New York. Background: We continue to get interesting topics in multiple sclerosis and have covered developments in several prior podcasts. Last August of 2018, we had an article from the Netherlands showing that individuals with multiple sclerosis, but who had greater cognitive reserve, were less likely to show any signs of cognitive impairment. The main measure of better cognitive reserve, cognitive strength in a sense, was higher level of education. In May of this past year, an important article, more than 6,000 downloads, showed that non-contrast MRI was sufficient for monitoring MS patients who were stable. These patients otherwise can receive 100 or more MRI scans during the course of their disease. This past summer, a beautiful anatomic study from the Neuro Group at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. They used 7T MRI to show the development of cortical lesions developing in cortical sulci. We usually think of demyelination and T1 bright lesions perpendicular to the ventricles. But pathologically, there is inflammation in the meninges. The flow of cerebral spinal fluid in the subarachnoid space is restricted. This could result in accelerated demyelination of the brain cortex in these regions. Today's paper advances these concepts by looking in greater detail at what happens to brain matter in the ventricles in patients with multiple sclerosis. Purpose. Evaluate the relationship of different measures of brain atrophy with the occurrence of disability in patients with MS. Methods. The authors evaluated more than 1,600 patients with MS over five years. The key to this paper is best seen in a figure. Hard to do in a podcast, so here we go with my big test of my powers of illustration. Imagine a patient at baseline with MS. The ventricles are normal size, but there is a lot of T2 high signal completely surrounding the lateral ventricles, almost like the high T2 signal is coating the interface between the brain and the CSF space in the ventricles a region of active MS, inflammation, and demyelination. Next, same patient five years later. The patient has gotten much worse, clinically progressed. The ventricles are now a bit larger. If you overlap the two MRI scans, the high T2 signal that surrounded the lateral ventricle at baseline is now mostly gone. There is just CSF there on the most recent scan. This is because the ventricles have gotten larger. With some incredibly complex image processing, you can calculate the amount of T2 high signal at baseline that is now replaced by CSF in the expanded ventricle. This number is called the atrophied T2 lesion volume. It is measured in cubic millimeters of tissue. We can also calculate other brain parameters, total brain volume, amount of total gray and total white matter. We also need the number and size of focal MS lesions in the brain. Look at as many of those parameters as possible determine which ones are most associated with progression of disability in multiple sclerosis. Results. In patients with progressive multiple sclerosis, the amount of atrophied T2 lesion volume, the lost brain matter, was greater than in MS patients who did not progress. How much brain was lost? An average of about 100 cubic millimeters per year. That's not much, about one-tenth of a cubic sonometer. What about comparison to change in overall brain volume? The overall amount of brain volume change was about 20% greater in patients who had disease progression. But patients with disease progression had about 50% greater change in the T2 atrophied lesion volume. Finally, compare all of the MRI measurements at once. The MRI markers are put in complicated equations. The MRI factors have to mathematically fight it out to see which ones are most important to predict progression of MS. The answer, the only variable that predicted conversion to the more severe secondary progressive form of multiple sclerosis was the atrophied T2 lesion volume. Conclusion. The essential condition of MS is the occurrence of symptomatic episodes separated in space and time, that is, episodes occur months or years apart and affect different anatomic locations of the brain. For diagnosis, time. Previously, the neurologist required two separate clinical episodes to diagnose MS. But there are now new criteria that use MRI findings. As of 2017, the McDonald criteria for MS allow for the second point in time to be defined not by another clinical attack, but simply by a new lesion appearing on the MRI. And the SPACE criteria... These are based on at least nine typical white matter lesions on MRI, or one enhancing lesion. Spinal fluid is also analyzed for immunoglobulin G, or groups of IgG proteins called oligoclonal bands. If spinal fluid is positive, then only two MRI lesions need to be present. For individuals who suffer from MS, the disease course seems unpredictable. Where and when another attack will take place will they get worse? Unfortunately, there is not much relationship between white matter lesions on MRI and the likelihood of disease progression or not. The concept in this study, atrophied T2 lesion volume, reflects not only the number of brain lesions, but also the brain substance that is destroyed and replaced by CSF fluid in the enlarged ventricles. The amount of brain tissue that is replaced by CSF is at the end stage of active inflammation plus neurodegeneration. At baseline, there is a certain amount of T2 bright tissue in the brain in the patient with MS. You can measure that, compare it to other patients, but the baseline amount of T2 tissue did not correlate with progression of disease. Another approach. You notice that the lateral ventricles are enlarged in MS. So measure the size of the lateral ventricles. See if the ventricles were larger in patients who got worse. Yes, the ventricles got larger, but the results were not consistent. So instead, Combine the two measures, get the amount of tissue that had T2 high signal at baseline and replaced by greater CSF space at follow up. The differences between baseline and follow up are magnified and are a better predictor of progression than either exam alone. Can we use this in the clinic? Neuroradiologists will immediately tell you the problem. It is incredibly challenging to measure the volume of the brain, not once, but many times. And how do you compare one patient to another, different brains with different sizes? All of this is true, the elegant methods used in this paper to do careful measurements are not possible in the clinic. On the other hand, once you see the images in the paper and the concepts, things begin to make more sense. We can clearly see the concept that T2 bright lesions get replaced over time by atrophied brain substance and CSF due to ventricular enlargement. And now we know, patients with these findings tend to have worse clinical outcome in the course of their MS. For the patient, these results might mean a better way to track treatment success or failure of medications for MS, perhaps more objective than measures of clinical disability. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.